How does one develop a bifocal view? That is, how does one combine asking big questions about long-standing issues in social theory with very specialized questions that allow the answer of the big questions in an empirical way? About this and many other fascinating topics is this conversation with Silvio Weisbord in the new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am truly delighted to have with me today the one and only Silvio Weisbord. Silvio is director and professor of the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University, an institution where he's been at since 2007. Before then, he was senior program officer of the Academy for Educational Development in Washington, DC. And before then, he was assistant and associate professor at professor at Rutgers and lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania. Silvio um, got his licenciatura, his undergraduate degree in sociology at the Universidad de Buenos Aires in Argentina, and then his MA and PhD in sociology, both at the University of California, San Diego. He's the author of nine book monographs. Um, the most recent ones are in Spanish, El Imperio de la Utopía, Mitos y Realidades de la Sociedad Estadounidense with Planeta, which came out uh, last year in 2020, and two books in English that came out in 2019 with Polity, The Communication Manifesto and Communication a Post-Discipline. If that wasn't enough, Silvio has edited nine other books the most recent ones, both with Howard Tamber, are The Rutledge Companion to Media Misinformation and Populism, which is coming out this year, and The Rutledge Companion to Media and Scandals, which came out in 2019. He has author or co-author over 60 articles in refereed journals, more than 60 other book chapters. He's former editor-in-chief uh, of the flagship uh, Journal of International Communication Association, Journal of Communication, former editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Press Politics. A few years ago, he was named an ICA fellow, one of the highest recognitions in the field. And that's because he's widely seen as one of the leading communication scholars of our time. Um, Thank you so much, Silvio, for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. Very happy to be here. My pleasure. So, so Silvio, how did it all begin? That is, 
How was the start of the journey that led you to become an academic? So the start of the journey was um, when I lived in Argentina after I finished um, my BA, the licenciatura, I did my studies during the military dictatorship in Argentina uh, between 79 and 83. And when I finished, it coincided with the return of democracy. It was a time of sort of excitement and hope and optimism in Argentina. Um, and I was sort of right from the very start, I, I, I got involved in working in communication studies just by chance with an Argentine media researcher who needed uh, a research assistant. And I was working as a TA uh, with um, his uh, spouse. And that's how I found out about it. And this was a study on the filmmaking industry in Argentina. And I was asked, will you be interested in sort of, and I said, yeah, sure. You know, it seemed like a good opportunity to uh, have some, some research experience. And that was sort of the beginning of my interest, I would say, in media industries. Uh, because, because of that work, I started reading his work and the work of other uh, Argentine and Latin American communication media scholars. At the same time that I continued being teaching assistant for a number of classes and doing other work in the mid 80s in Argentina. And, and that's what I said, well, maybe I would like to be a researcher and to teach. Uh, and, uh, and I wasn't sure whether or not it will be sociology or communication media studies. But at the same time, I started thinking that probably I would like to do that abroad. Now, at that time, there were no PhDs, doctoral programs in sociology or communication in Argentina. I started doing an MA in social sciences at Flaxo. Um, and then as I was thinking that, then uh, somebody that I TA for, uh, Elizabeth Jolene, asked me, would you be interested in, in, having, in doing a PhD in the, in the United States? And I said, actually, I was thinking about studying abroad. I said, so, well, let me know if you're interested and, you know, we can sort of talk and plan together. And that was sort of the, the beginning of the, of the process in the sense of the realization that I really enjoy reading, doing research, writing and teaching. And I found that I needed additional training, that I needed um, a, a, a degree. And it seemed like an obvious thing to do, to do a PhD in sociology because of my own training, the way that I was thinking, uh, the fact that I had an opportunity with probably one of the best known sociologists in Argentina and in Latin America, uh, even though she's, of course, known for us as sociologists of social movements, citizenship, uh, women's movements, uh, that sort of I could count on her support to find my place in the United States. So, so the so sociology seemed to me there was the sort of the obvious place to 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 do it. But at the same time, I was becoming very interested in communication, and I was also being a teaching assistant for a communication class in addition to this communication research that I was doing. And of all the places where, where I got admitted, uh, UCSD seemed like the best fit because it had a, a great sociology department that specialized in the areas that I wanted to work on, political sociology and cultural sociology. Plus eventually found out I had a great communication department that actually overlapped with my own interest and my approach to sort of communication issues in terms of media industries um, and then he had a great Latin American studies program. Uh, so those were the sort of the three reasons why I ended up going to 
uh, UCSD. And once I was at UCSD, I tried to figure out what was my, my project. I tried to do a project sort of at the intersection between political sociology and media studies. Uh, and actually I spent pretty much equal amounts of time both in sociology and communication during my graduate studies. Uh, and that was sort of the, the culmination of the process that I started in Argentina uh, right after college and the beginning of my um, career in communication studies and my sort of education and my professional development in the, in the US. Okay, that's super interesting. And how was, how was the experience of being a Latin American student in California in the first half of the 90s? It was, it was very interesting because it was, it had a great Latin American faculty. There was lots of people across the humanities and the social sciences to learn from, to talk about Latin American politics and culture and literature. It was really a very uh, nice environment. And probably that was sort of one of the best decisions I could have made. Um, actually, it was between that and, and University of Texas at, at Austin, uh, as the two places that I want my, in my final list to go to come to the to the U.S. for similar reasons. I mean, um, so. Uh, there was a community, I will say, a large community of Latin American students and Latinx students interested in Latino and, Lat and Latin American issues in San Diego because of the border, because of the traditional um, linkages between UCSD with Mexico as well as with Latin America. So there were a number of places on campus to actually uh, try ideas around about Latin America. And that was very comforting not only as an intellectual community, but I will say broader as a, as a community of like-minded people or people with sort of similar interests. And, and that was beautiful. Um, and then of course the eighties was, and the late eighties and the nineties, uh, there are two issues that in recollect, I mean, in, in retrospective were central. One was the, the transition in Chile in 89 seemed like the consolidation Sort of, of democracy in the region was like a, a, a huge moment because it signified the culmination of the, of the process. But at the same time, what happened in Nicaragua in 1990 when the Sandinista uh, lost the election against Julieta Chamorro seemed also sort of a turning point in the political history of the, of the region. So to me, was those were two events that actually were very interesting for, for people in San Diego studying Latin American politics, Latin American culture, because it seemed to me one, the trend of democratization, the other one that's the trend of, let's say, socialist revolution and socialist thinking, that 1990 was also sort of um, a turning point. Um, there were many other issues as well that were happening, but those are the ones that I remember being particularly interested, sort of interesting, thinking about those in that, in that context. Okay. And then you went straight from a PhD to Penn, correct? Right, I did, let's say the equivalent of a postdoc. I finished in 93, then I went to Penn. It was a program that Elihu Katz directed, uh, interested in public sphere issues. So I was there 93 to 95, the first year in Elihu Katz program and the following year as a, as a lecturer at Penn. 
And after that, I, I was hired at Rutgers University, originally Department of Communication. So that was my, I would say, full immersion in communication studies because it was the first time that I had some kind of affiliation with the communications program. Uh, even though I took communication courses in San Diego and I started participating in the ICA conferences uh, when I was in grad school, but it was pretty much my full immersion into um, a communications program in, in, uh, through, through Attenberg, but also because the communication program in San Diego was and still is a very unique take on communication studies. So my upbringing, if you wish, uh, is sort of as a doctoral training through many people in the communication program, I knew that it was sort of a particular understanding to take approach to communication studies that actually fit my own perspective, which is multidisciplinary, uh, deeply embedded in the social science and the humanities with, with large, uh, methodologically diverse. So, I mean, that was, um, I, that was by chance because I went for sociology, but I mean, I knew from my limited knowledge about communication that that will be a good fit as well. Uh, before I went to San Diego, I knew, of course, of the work of Herb Schiller because Herb Schiller was widely known in, in, in Latin American communication media studies. And actually, before I went to San Diego, I came across the work of Michael Schutzen. As uh, one day I was at the Lincoln Library that you may remember, a sponsor funded by the US Embassy in, in Argentina. And I was getting ready, I used to go with some frequency, let's say weekly, just to read in English, just to you know get used to. And, um, and I came across his book, his original book, the, the first book, The Discovery, The News There. And that was by chance that I sort of came across his work before I landed in, in, in San Diego. So, so anyway, so that was, I think it was a very good transition to Annenberg because it exposed me to parts of communication studies that I was not fully aware of. And so that was a great learning experience as well. So, so let me fast forward then um, to, to the very recent uh, past and, um, one of the things that is unique about the trajectory is uh, the breadth and the scope of your work, both in terms of topics and in terms of writing. I mean, you are a novelist, uh, you write empirical social science, you write essays, um, and, and so you have a very, very comprehensive view of the field. And as a matter of fact, in my opinion, communication a post-discipline is probably the most important account of where the field is at now. Do you think the fact that you came from a different discipline and were first socialized in communication in an environment that was very important, but not the canon of the field, mm -hmm. right? And then your first sort of institutional immersion in communication was at the very center of the field and still is. The Animal School at Penn is probably, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the most central uh, institutional environment in the field. Do you think that sort of prepared you um, to many years later, being able to develop the kind of, of account that you provided in communication and post-discipline. I know that your editorship in journals and, and many other things contributed probably, but I'm thinking aloud, hearing your, your story, do you think in, in some way those early years set the, the stage uh, in some way for, for how you perceive the field now? Yeah, absolutely. And it was a combination of 
the my intellectual sort of um, development in Argentina that was sort of broadly based in the social sciences, both during my sociology years as well as sort of the years before I came here, that you know being part of an intellectual environment in which you were expected to be broadly read, let's say in the social sciences and the humanities, you know, philosophy, political science, sociology, literature. At least in that time, it was sort of, you know, implicit expectation that you were, you know, that were you going to do that on your own and you were being part of study groups as I was, that you read widely uh, without asking for disciplinary origins of any book or anything. I mean, you just, you just read and try to make sense of things. So that was part of my, what I read in sociology during my BA, as well as the years later, as also what I was sort of working on. Um, and then I landed in San Diego that also had like a broad based understanding, both of sociology, the department of sociology was very broad in the way of understanding sociological questions and traditions and current lines of work, rather than I would say highly specialized. Our training was, I would say significantly broad, but also the communication department in San Diego was, again, you had anthropologists, you had uh, psychologists, you had political scientists, you had people coming from all over that converged in that department. So in some ways, unintendedly, I will say, because it was not a conscious choice that I made to be, to, to read widely. Uh, in some ways it shaped my, my view of what intellectual work is and still does. I mean, that's one, one reason that I find uh, probably exciting to, to read across social sciences and sometimes dab into reading in the humanities because I find it fascinating, exciting, nourishing. Uh, I find that in the, in the encounter of ideas coming from different traditions, sometimes very interesting things actually happen. And that's something that I learned just by doing it. It's not just that deliberately I set out to to do that. Uh, so that's where so, so those early years, I think, shaped the way that I that I think about it. Um, and the flip side of this is how then you become, quote unquote, specialized, especially in an academic environment like the US, but I will say in global academia, in which all the incentives are to reward your specialization in a particular line of inquiry. Um, that you have to drill down you know, beyond areas of specialization in communication studies, let's say, not just health calm or polycom or calm, but within each one, you have to be a specialist in a particular line of inquiry. And that is something that I learned here, right? I learned in the United States. And the question is how you develop that, how you keep sort of what I like to think of as a bifocal view, that you keep thinking about large, big questions in in social science or in social theory, which to me is sort of my, uh, my let's say, my point of reference, if you want my, my motherland or my fatherland, you know, go always go back to the, some of the big questions of social theory, no matter how difficult they are to answer because they tend to be framed as in very broad terms. But how you combine that with more specialized sort of questions whether theoretical or research question. And that's something that I learned in the, in the US. And that to me is sort of part of the beauty that I remember discussing with other uh, scholars who had a very similar experience. Basically you were exposed to different ideas across social sciences and humanities in Latin America because that has been the tradition 
more of a continental tradition particularly identified with let's say a French or a German model and then the tradition of more specialized scholarship uh, that many of us encounter at least for the first time in in the US academia and that to me is sort of always uh, an interesting balance sometimes it's a difficult balance but it sort of it, it keeps things interesting fresh I mean in the way that you can think about big questions but at the same time uh, sort of how you bring that down into more sort of specialized areas of your own work, not just one project, but, but that. Uh, and, and that matters because of, you know, let's say professional identity, you know, people identify you as a scholar of not just journalism studies or technology studies, but someone who has a particular expertise within those two fields, right? Um, so I, I, I found early on that I had to basically figure that out uh, on my own, you know, you have resources available, people to talk to, ideas you can read, places to discuss, but you have to figure out that part of that trajectory on, on, on your own. What are the more specialized areas of question that you're interested in? And here you combine that with other interests that you may have that, you know, go beyond a specific sort of area. And, and that's probably why I, I, I move back and forth between different areas or different ways of asking questions, because that's, uh, I realize that's who I am. That's how I am sort of built, if you want, in terms of the way that I that I think or approach problems and questions. And, and that also means moving in and out of writing genres. Right. And, and, in, and in your case, also in and out of the tenure system. I mean, you, you, you had tenure at Rutgers and then you left academia for five years. Right. So that decision. Very few people well, make that decision. To me, it was I mean, there was like personal circumstances uh, why I I had to move to Washington. I was living in New Jersey when I was at Rutgers. I moved to Washington for family reasons, and I continued working at Rutgers for two years. And then after that, it was just really challenging, mentally and physically, to live in two places. Really, really difficult. And uh, so I started looking for jobs in the in the Washington area. I couldn't find an academic job. And then a good friend asked me if I was interested in working in international development. That's something that I somewhat, you know, followed. And I did some work on communication and international development for for a while. So I had some experience working in on those issues. And then somebody was in a project work, you know, trying to find somebody to set up. Uh, programs to train people in communication for international development with universities in different parts of the world. And that was uh, a USA project. And I said, that sounds interesting. I never thought about working, not, you know, working in an academic environment, but it looked like I could develop programs that were basically partnerships with universities. Uh, intellectually, I found it stimulating. I want to know more about international development, international aid industry. And it seemed like a good opportunity and a way to sort of um, find, let's say, a little bit more calm and peace, given that sort of frantic schedule that I had going back and forth between Washington and, uh, and, New, and New Jersey. So, and I made that move very cautiously, but it seemed to me that it made a lot of sense at that time. Uh, and I was willing to, you know, not say abandon academia, but take a very long sabbatical 
I knew at some point I wanted to be back in academia because that's where my heart was and, and is. But uh, in terms of life choices made perfect sense to make that choice to go and work for a nonprofit. And then the work was great for, I would say, three years, at least three and a half years. And then the work was no longer that interesting. And that's when I started sort of feeling the itch to return to academia. So it took me about a year, year and a half um, until I found, and I had to be in Washington DC. So I was geographically bounded. So it's not that I could go anywhere else. That was still the same situation I was um, when I decided to quit Rutgers. Uh, and that's how I landed at GW. There was an opening and, uh, you know, um, so it was a wonderful five-year experience working on very interesting issues. I learned a lot about all kinds of stuff that I still find it extremely useful in my own academic work. Um, I was sort of uh, having a first row uh, into a world that I always followed from the outside and I found it intriguing. And I learned quite a lot about not just communication for development, but about practice, about international aid, about global social change, about how international organizations work. I mean, I can go on and on. It was just a, a remarkable learning experience uh, for me. I got to travel a lot and meet wonderful people around the world. Um, so it was, uh, it, it was a highlight. I mean, it was not intended to be that way. It was intended to be a way to address a particular sort of work situation, but uh, it, was, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, but again, my, my heart was in academia because what I wanted to do was to do research and teach and so. And, and when you returned to academia, when you started at uh, GW, do you think the way you approached scholarship changed in some way or was affected by those five years um, outside of academia? Yeah, because, I mean, in some ways, when you're outside of academia, especially in working in international development, the kind of questions that you ask, even if you do research, even if you work with academics doing research in development communication, communication for social change, the questions that you have, the takeaways that you need are very concrete, very practical. Uh, and that's something that in academia, it's interesting, it's important, but it's not decisive in the way that you are managing programs or fundraising for programs. Uh, most of the work that I did was around uh, health communication, environmental communication. Um, so we're very concrete in terms of the way that you design the research and the way that you think about what conclusions you wanna get out of this or what is the kind of recommendations that that you need. I got to work with WHO, with UNICEF, with other, with the World Bank. And it's a very sort of, in some ways, very applied kind of mindset. I also had opportunity of working in some cases with activists when I was doing work related to HIV, AIDS communication and, and tuberculosis communication, which in some ways was at the uh, crossroads of activists of international development which, you know, you, you zero in on effective actions to address particular circumstances and how you make change. That is sort of the driving impetus for the research, for the debate. Um, so, uh, and that's something that has stayed with me. It stayed with me in the sense of, I think in academia, we can take the 
some freedoms and liberties and have some kind of intellectual exercises that in the nonprofit world, there is no time, there is no funding for that. That's not the mindset. Sometimes there is interest or curiosity on academic findings, but for a very different set of motivations or reasons. And I think that kind of, you know, um, question stayed with me. It doesn't mean that I have done only applied work or work only with very obvious applications, but that's something that, of course, I have uh, regularly when I think about any given project or anything that I'm teaching, you know, so. Okay, and I mean, I want to go back to your writing and also to your editorial work, but recently you were appointed uh, head of the school, right? You're director of uh, the school, you're essentially dean. Um, and I, I wonder to what extent uh, your experiences, not only within academia, but also outside academia, shape um, how you approach your work. And, and if you could elaborate or share with us a little bit um, how it is to run a school. I mean, most right. of us just work in a school and maybe run you know, small programs uh, on occasion, but not the entire place. Right. Um, so, so my current job is director, which is probably uh, the, the way we like to call it is between a chair and a dean, because it's not just regular chair, because we have all kinds of uh, other projects that we need to manage as part of the school. But we don't, we're not an independent autonomous school from the from the college. So, and actually, I mean, I think that I, I'm using much of what I learned uh, when I work in international development because basically I had to manage projects, including research projects or service projects or conferences. So a lot of work that I did then was about managing. And that's when you are in a position like a chair or, or a director or dean, you have to manage. You have to manage, you know, 20, 25 things, let's say on any given day or a given week. So you have to keep track of multiple things, which is basically what I did back in back then. Meaning when you're a professor, you basically focus on your research and on different components of your research projects or two or three projects that you're working on your teaching, your publication associated with, with your research, you know, conferences, in some ways it's much more, like say circumscribed. When you're managing a unit, especially a unit with multiple functions, with multiple programs, with institutes and centers and, you know, fundraising, then management is an essential skill. And I think that basically I developed that working internationally for, the, for during those five years in intercultural intercultural environments with teams in different countries <laughs> with different expertise. I was working with uh, public health doctors, with medical doctors, with experts in environmental issues, experts in communication, journalism, graphic design. So it was, and that to me is something else that I learned, which is how you work around common goals with people who come from very different places professionally in terms of life experiences around common goals. And that is also just not just the managing or juggling multiple responsibilities, but how you bring together people around common goals. And that is to me something that as an administrator, you have to do all, all the time and figure out if there are differences, you know, how you bring people together. If there are some conflicts, how you sort of resolve the conflicts or move all, you know, move beyond the conflicts to bring people together. Something that, you know, typically 
we don't experience with that kind of intensity or continuity if you are just a professor, if you are just basically teaching or doing research or doing service for your department, school, or university. Uh, and I think, I mean, I could go on, but I mean, in terms of managing budgets, for example, when I was working for those five years, I had to manage budget, I had to raise money, manage budgets and payments and all that kind of stuff. So that sort of uh, helped me to build a skill set that actually I find it very useful right now. Um, so, And how, how do you do some of the things, not necessarily manage the budget, but I mean, um, you know, bring people together who are on opposite ends or address conflict and prioritize because resources are not unlimited, right? right? Um, do you have some, uh, you know, do's and don'ts that you've learned from experience? Well, you always try to sort of find what is the main goal here that I, that you can have as a leader or that the department, the school has as a mission. You never lose track of that. You know, what is it that brings us together here? How do we serve students? How do we strengthen or expand what we already have in terms of resources and offerings and opportunities for students in terms of internships or funding or awards, whatever that may be. And you never lose sight that that is the ultimate goal. Whether or not people get along or there are some challenges, whether people are willing to put the time or not. I mean, that's you try to figure that, that out. Uh, I happen to have that. My vision of the school fits with what the school has been doing uh, since its inception. So to me, it's a continuity rather than taking it a different direction. So then that's that's what brings us together. You cannot afford not to do that. You try to figure out ways to uh, address differences uh, and how you sort of in some way bring people together around a common vision. Um, that sounds, you know, relatively easy, but we know that that's very difficult when you get into the nitty gritty of it. Uh, but that's, I mean, academia, especially because of faculty governance, that's the way that it should work. When you're working in a nonprofit, it's a very different story because the funder has expectations. So basically your audience of one is your funder. You can propose things and many funders do appreciate that, but that's primarily, you need to bring a team together around the agreement that you have with a funder and with different partners. You always work with partnerships. You rarely work alone. And that's a great thing that you're always working with partners in different projects. Um, so, um, and also because the structure is more hierarchical than what it is in academia, you know, in terms of, you know, sort of, how accountability or decision-making actually flows. Um, so, um, I mean, in some ways they are very different environments, but uh, some of the skills are similar that you need if you want, let's say, to lead uh, people around common goals, you know, excellence in education, more opportunities for career training for students, whatever the goal may be in, in specific areas in your, in your school. Okay, now your answer, which is in part centered of sort of finding common ground across differences, right. um, is a theme, at least my, in my read, of two of your most recent works, um, which are very different in, in, the, in terms of the object uh, of inquiry, yet they have uh, striking similarities. This is communication post discipline and an imperial utopia, right? In one case is your account of 
you know, common themes across diversity in a field of inquiry. In the other is uh, your account of sort of common myths uh, in a uh, country as diverse as the US. And in both cases, I mean, not only there is a topical similarity, but there is a um, um, uh, an, uh, sort of uh, another area of common ground, which is that they're highly reflexive exercises, right? Um, which, are, which is not the coin of the realm in academia, because again, we talk, we will write about some very specialized issues, et cetera, et cetera. So how, how did, did these two projects come about? They, they, they were published with well, one year of difference. So I'm assuming they overlapped during a certain period of time. Right, right. Um, how was the writing of them? Because they're, 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 they're masterpieces in my opinion, and they're very different from each other and very different from a lot of what gets written out there. So can you share a little bit the journey? Yeah. So thank you very much for your kind words on, on the book. So I don't know. I mean, I think to me, the lesson is how you find common ground with people who are very different from you. That's public life. That's democracy. I mean, we are getting too philosophical about it. Uh, I mean, I can impose my own views on anything. I don't find that particularly interesting. I find more that if public life or you know, sort of the good public life and democracy shows us that is finding sort of common ground with people who are very different from you for a variety of reasons. Uh, difference is the sort of the defining element of public life, of democracy, as well as our disciplines, as well as this uh, US society. Once we recognize that, then that is the sociological question, how you make something that resembles a kind of community uh, out of difference, right? Um, I always been intrigued by that question and I never thought or deliberately that I will be sort of infused the way that I approach problems. But the fact is that I've done it pretty much the way that you just said. Um, so in communication, that's what I, I mean, it was out of the experience of editing the Journal of Communications. So I had this, you said like, wow, this is so diverse. How do we, how do we make sense of this? What is in common? And, I, and I, I like to say that, you know, that was always my question when I finished putting together one issue of the Journal of Communication. I said like, these are very different, excellent articles. What do they have in common? I don't know, but that's a good question to ask. And that's a question that an editor might ask, not necessarily people, you know, who are busy and happy working specific lines of research. You know, you don't need, you don't have the, the, the necessity to think more broadly, to have a bird's eye view of a discipline or a field. You don't have to, because of the way that academia is built in terms of uh, academic careers, incentives, rewards, they actually, you don't have to think beyond a specific area that you and your sort of colleagues or collaborators are interested in. When you're the editor of a journal like Journal of Communication, you, in my sense, that was my first realization, you must think about sort of broadly defined not only because that was my uh, commitment or my promise when I applied for the job, but because right away I realized, wow, this is even more diverse and sort of scattered in a good way, um, um, more chaotic or more representative of this idea of the chaos of the disciplines uh, than I ever expected. So then I have to figure out what are the common threads? What are the... Uh, you know, um, what connects these very dispersed areas? 
And that was a very interesting intellectual exercise. Uh, no, it's not about getting along together. It's not about that. It's about more of the intellectual challenge, what I found fascinating. Um, um, and then in the case of the United States, early on, I realized when I moved here, the question that I was asked in grad school, this is again, a sociology question, is what brings societies together? That was probably one of the original sociological questions, the questions of modern sociology. And that stayed with me as I stayed in this country. And that question has been asked by so many people in this country, which is uh, a pluribus unum, you know, how you turn from plurality into a resemblance of a society. Is that necessary? Is that desirable normatively and practically? So I was sort of kept thinking about that, just like many other sort of visitors or you know Americans who have been thinking about that question since the very beginning of this country. And that's what I tried to do in this book in Spanish, in some ways, try to figure out uh, the role of powerful myths that in some ways, as we know, uh, um, one of the functional sort of purposes of, of myths, and this of course comes from anthropology originally and then from uh, sociology, of understanding what is the social glue, how societies stay together and, and the powerful role of myths or ideas or ideology uh, in raising a sense of, con of a common consciousness, or at least the pretense that there is something common and unified. And I say, well, that's, that's sort of interesting, um, especially coming from a society like Argentina, in which I didn't see anything similar in the sense of this very powerful unifying myths that actually are able to bring together, or at least the pretense of bringing together uh, diversity into a common set of ideas. But instead in this country, I was sort of, and I'm still, uh, constantly confronted with these very powerful sort of unifying ideas or ideas that have at least a unifying uh, purpose. And that's what I said, well, that will be, that is a good sort of, um, I will say, uh, hook to organize the book and my lessons and my insights after living here for, for more than, than, three, than three decades. Uh, the purpose was just to explain to people who probably don't live in this country or have some limited knowledge, just as limited knowledge as I had when I moved here. Uh, limited and complete wrong um, to basically explain what in my mind, you know, sort of some of the key issues that are, that define this country. It's an incomplete list, but I think it was sort of the best list that I can come up with. These eight themes that I discussed uh, in the books that helped me understand better where I'm living, where I decided to uh, have my professional life, raise my family. I was a way of sort of writing something that probably I wish I would have read <laughs> before I came here. So, Okay. And um, going back to the editorships, um, you had a very, very successful tenure at the International Journal of Press Politics. It was a, a much more obscure journal before you took it than after you left it. Uh, well, it, it really competed at that point already with political communication as, as the, the, 
the four most specialized journals of, of that field, and then Journal of Communication. Um, very few of us have had the possibility of, of, of being a journal editor, or will have. Um, so how does it work? I mean, what day-to-day um, -day, um, main challenges, um, and can you really, so what's the tension between being a Democrat and an autocrat uh, as the editor-in-chief? Well, I, I mean, I think that, um, I don't know if I will frame it between being a Democrat and an autocrat. Um, I think is that as long as you are transparent, you are fair, um, people will, will understand the decisions that you make. And just as an editor, you know, you make, you make more rejections just by pure statistics for acceptance decisions, right? You reject, I don't know, 90, 94% of papers that arrive to most leading journals today, probably. So, and nobody likes to be rejected and it's, it's hard and sort of how you make the decision. So you have to be clear about the criteria that you use and you have to be transparent um, with reviewers and with authors, as well as with yourself. Uh, so that's the balance. And then you, have a, you need to have a very clear vision because the vision is basically what ultimately from where you come up with the criteria the vision is about, I want to have a journal that a journal, of, in case of the Journal of Communication, um, articles that address big questions in communication journal because of the, is one of the few non-specialized journals. So we have, my idea was to preserve it in that way rather than publishing only some articles in the vast communication studies or articles on highly specialized questions that could be published in other journals. I said, well, this probably, this journal should be the place where sort of I, big ideas, big questions in a specific areas of communication studies or cross-cutting communication, areas of specialization communication studies, that is the sweet spot for, for the Journal of Communication. At least that was my vision. And that right away laid out sort of what some of the criteria for what will be a paper that I will say is accepted or will be sent out for review. If it was too specific, I said, this is very interesting, but it's not really for us. And you try to be consistent with that decision with every similar paper that comes your way. Um, and then with reviewers, the same thing. Typically reviewers review based on the merits of the intrinsic merits of a piece. But as an editor, you need to have a different set of questions, which is, does it fit the journal, right? Does it fit the vision for the journal? which not necessarily reviewers when you are reviewing a specific submission have. So uh, to me is, I mean, again, it's not about, uh, it's, it's about being transparent and, you know, sort of that, that, that you laid out exactly how you make a decision. Not because you're gonna make people happy, but because you're gonna be consistent in the way that you make decision as long as you're clear from the get-go. Uh, and I try to do that as much as I can. Um, so um, I, I think it was a very, I mean, to me, it was a spectacular, unique opportunity to learn and, you know, uh, and learn about not just communication studies, but about how people do research, how people write, how people collaborate, how people review papers. I mean, every day was like a ton of work, a ton of work 
but it was extremely um, enlightening, enriching. It was just one of those opportunities that you rarely have when you think of yourself as someone working with ideas as an intellectual. That's what you do. That's what you do. Sometimes it is work, you know, just, but the question is how you are in the right sort of place to approach this as a current daily opportunity to actually learn more. If you're not in that place, it's very difficult. It becomes very sort of burdensome and overwhelming because it can quickly become a lot of work. Okay. Now, from the position of having learned about the field uh, as an editor, from the position of having learned as the, uh, about the field as an outsider to the field initiative, and then progressively moving in and making, um, you know, reflecting and, and, uh, on that and uh, turning those reflections into um, a very important book on the state of the, of the communication space. If it had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field of communication and media studies to change, what would you wish for? Uh, probably fostering a sense of curiosity, um, understanding how other people work and think, ideas. I don't think we have enough time typically because especially given increased specialization, it's very difficult to carve out the time to actually do it. Uh, that we don't read it basically, we could say because we're not interested, but really because our intellectual life is just such in a different trajectory, you know, bounded by very much more specific questions. And by doing that, I think that there is a strong professional incentives to do that because of the way that academic careers take place and, and recognition and satisfaction. But by doing that, we sort of lose a sense of curiosity or our sense of curiosity become a little bit more numb, I will say, um, which probably, it drove us originally for many of us into what we do right now, into academic work, that we were curious. We had a hunger, we had a satisfaction, a pleasure, just reading ideas. Curiosity is what put us here, I will assume. <laughs> and, and, and I heard that from many of us over years and years that, you know, you were really curious to know more about something. And somehow academia sort of shapes your curiosity in certain ways that doesn't let you, you cannot afford to preserve some of the original curiosity about ideas that you don't know and not like next to you, in your colleague in the office next to you, or in a panel next to you when you go to a professional conference, or uh, another author in the series of a publisher that you're publishing with. That is always a compartmentalization in some ways sort of undermines I would say a, a, a more sort of adventurous, bold sense of curiosity. And I, and I try not to lose that I, uh, because that I find that sort of uh, very enriching because it can, and sometimes because it has very instrumental um, results. It helps me rethink some of the work that I'm doing or some questions that I have, you know, just by reading, I don't know, biology or intellectual biographies or, you know, history, it, sometimes you never know when you will find an idea that clicks with you that is directly relevant to the work that you're doing, or it keeps your brain working because you're thinking and thinking is thinking. It's not about thinking about a specific subject. 
is the way you think about, and I think about reading or listening to ideas as a way to spark sort of a way of, of thinking, of becoming better at thinking. And, uh, and that capacity of being surprised uh, to me is, is, is fundamental. And not necessarily that kind of nourishment comes from the people who are working exactly on what you're working on. It comes sometimes from people who are working on something completely different. Uh, and that is to me something that I, I wish that we could do more, not individual, but individually, but collectively, how we can foster that. Um, otherwise, I think I will feel personally that I'm missing out a big chunk as I am somebody working with ideas will become so wrapped up in sort of specific questions or specific ways of, of, of looking at it. Um, so that's that would be my, my wish. The question of how we do it, how do we foster that consciousness beyond grad school? Um, in grad school, I think we have probably more skills or more elements to actually try to promote that. Beyond that, I think that is much more difficult because of the rigor expectations, the you know clock ticking, because everything else that has to do with um, with our work and expectations in in academia. All right, that's a great great answer. Thank you very much uh, for uh, taking an hour of your day to share your your history and your knowledge and your reflections with us. Uh, thank you to our listeners for staying with us to the end. And I invite everybody to stay tuned for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.